0: This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Professor Greg Devine is group leader of mosquito control here, an entomologist with decades of research, including South America, East Africa, and of course, North Queensland. He focuses on mosquito vectors of disease with an emphasis on control and surveillance. And we'll find out how important that is. His group looks at dengue, Ross River fever, malaria, chikungunya, Zika, Murray Valley encephalitis. But today we're looking at Japanese encephalitis. Hi, I'm Claire Blake, and you're listening to Body Lab. Thanks for joining us, Greg.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: We've learned a lot of medical terms over the last few years, but to talk about mosquito-borne viruses, we probably need to know arbovirus.
1: Yeah, so arbovirus is arthropod-borne virus. So it's all those viruses which are transmitted into other species by arthropods, which are ticks, mosquitoes, lice, and any other hard-bodied invertebrate.
0: And when you entomologists say vector, you mean?
1: A vector is something that transmits from one thing to another. The vector of malaria is a mosquito called Anopheles, and that transmits malaria from one person to another via mosquito bite. The mosquito is the vector.
0: Okay, and reservoir?
1: And reservoir is where the virus is. So the virus is found uh, in the wild sometimes. For example, we're talking about Japanese encephalitis. That reservoir is in the wild bird population. There are a very large number of viruses that are spread by mosquitoes. Um, Some of them are very important in terms of human disease. The most important virus that is transmitted by mosquitoes and is important to humans is dengue. There are about 400 million infections around the world. About 100 million of those will be apparent And there's a relatively small number of deaths now from dengue because if you can get to a public health clinic and get your kind of fluids and the management of the disease sorted out, then you'll probably survive. But it can be very debilitating. And in poor countries, it's clearly very important because it will stop you from working for a couple of weeks. And clearly that's very important where you have no social security blanket. So dengue is one of the most important globally, but it's not the one that's necessarily the biggest killer. We've also heard recently about diseases like chikungunya and Zika, which are also mosquito-borne. And they've caused uh, major kind of epidemics around the world over the last decade. But they tend to sweep in and then you get immunity in the affected population and then they disappear again for a while. So chikungunya is not something we hear about a great deal now and Zika is something that disappeared um, after that initial outbreak in 2015-16. But they will come back again when there's enough uh, susceptible people in the population.
0: And Queensland, we all know about dengue fever, but Japanese encephalitis, what's its history in Australia and particularly Queensland?
1: Japanese encephalitis is an extremely common mosquito-borne viral infection in Asia. There are about 80,000 symptomatic human cases of Japanese encephalitis annually. And of course, as we know, there's a large percentage of those who will unfortunately die and another large percentage of the survivors will go on to have serious Neurological effects. But there are probably millions of infections annually in Asia. The first time we found it in Australia was in the middle of the 1990s in the outer Torres Strait Islands and Cape York. Two, I think, people were initially flagged as having encephalitis. Again, it's something that people were not, especially then, people were not really expecting it. And then they went in and did lots of surveillance and they discovered that the virus was circulating quite widely, as evidenced by presence in the mosquito population and in a sentinel pig population. So that all happened in the mid-1990s, and there was another outbreak in 1998, which was the first time that there was a human cases on the Queensland mainland. And there was still quite a lot of surveillance going on at that point in time. But then after that, there was a vaccination programme, so people were considered at greatest risk. Vaccination for JE became a part of their immunisation programme. There were no more human cases after that. And as a result, the amount of surveillance kind of diminished a little, and there were a few mosquito traps that are kept in northern Queensland now, but there's probably far too few of them.
0: The birds can give it to mosquitoes, who can give it to pigs, and that's the only way that humans get it.
1: That is what we think is happening. So it's definitely, in herons and egrets, is is the accepted major reservoir. It's, It's how the virus is maintained continuously over long periods. Sometimes the right set of circumstances will happen in which the wading birds may change their migration patterns, and you may end up with viremic birds close to a piggery, because of new wetlands in the vicinity of the piggery. And then you'll find, because of the warm, wet weather, there are large numbers of mosquitoes emerging, and that makes the transmission from the birds to the pigs possible. And then the pigs are really good at amplifying up the virus to enormous quantities within their bodies. They're particularly good at infecting mosquitoes, which then go on to infect humans. So it's a birds to mosquito to pigs to mosquito to humans. The human bit tends to happen at the end of the transmission season. They're the last ones to get infected.
0: Can we pass it on?
1: No. So it's a dead end in humans. We don't have enough virus that's created um, to be able to infect a mosquito. Thank goodness, because that would make it a much greater problem than it is. And similarly with horses. Horses can also be um, infected and can sometimes have very serious encephalitis associated with that infection, but they do not transmit the virus either. They're all dead ends. Um, so it's really pigs which are the key amplification hosts. We call it the amplification factor, being this ability to grow up large amounts of virus in their bodies.
0: In the most recent outbreak of encephalitis in Australia, it's gone well and truly south. Is that the mosquitoes getting carried by a wind or travelling far or the birds? How's that happened and why hasn't it happened before?
1: There are three possibilities. One is that it is wind blown mosquitoes. The original outbreak in the Torres Strait, one of the origins of that, if potentially, was wind blown mosquitoes from PNG or from Indonesia. So this current outbreak that's covering the south of Australia as well. Potentially it's mosquitoes. A lot of people think that it is changing migration pathways for water birds. And the other possibility is uh, feral pigs. Queensland in particular has a huge number, millions of feral pigs. We know that they're potentially good ways of maintaining the virus too. We know very little about the distribution of the virus in the wild pig population. But that's also a possibility. There are so many of them. They're very good at amplifying the virus just like domestic pigs are.
0: I think people would be shocked to know that. We're thinking, well, if not we're a pig farm, we're probably a little safer than everyone else, but that's just not the case.
1: Well, I think this is now what the Departments of Health and Departments of Agriculture will be doing nationally is trying to verify what the likely pathways are. And at the moment, I think there's probably an awful lot of work to be done in that respect. It's very difficult, obviously, to do work on the, on the wildlife reservoirs. A long time ago, we could have gone out and shot a whole bunch of water birds and bled them all and figured out if they were a significant reservoir or not. We can't do that anymore, and our perceived wisdom about water birds being really important is all based on work that was done um, in the 60s and 70s and uh, well before we had animal ethics committees. But what we can do is we can look at piggeries very closely, and I'm sure people will be doing that, and it is time to look at the feral pig population very closely too. But I think it's interesting that we do need to now verify everything that we think we know about the disease. So it is interesting, for example, that as far as I can make out, and I don't have any inside information here, I'm only reading media reports, but most of the cases that have occurred are not very clearly connected with piggeries. Uh, Although you would think that it would be workers in piggeries and workers in industries closely associated with piggeries, like abattoirs, that might be at greatest risk. They're not the ones who've contracted Japanese encephalitis at this stage. So it's probably just that they've been somewhere within a 5 to 10 kilometre vicinity of a piggery and mosquitoes can fly that far, so that's probably it. But all of that needs to be verified and explored.
0: I've heard you say several times that we surely do need to look at a national approach for this now that it's in the three states.
1: Yeah, well, I think the federal government recently announced a strategy. I mean, it's a very vague strategy. Um, it just says that they're going to commit more to surveillance and uh, looking at potential reservoirs and wildlife and uh, livestock. But I think there's clearly a realisation now that whether it's a centralised centres of disease control, like that there are in, in the US and in many Asian countries and in Europe too, what's clearly needed here is clear communication of what should be done in terms of responses and what should be done in terms of surveillance because at the moment all the states are just doing their own thing and some are investing a lot and some are investing a little but they're all doing it slightly differently and there's such a range of things that can be done that it's probably time to have some kind of national conversation about here's the bare minimum effort that ought to be going into surveillance.
0: Let's talk about why it's a really dangerous disease. The symptoms are, Greg?
1: For the vast majority of people um, who are, I mean they call them asymptomatic but they're more kind of subclinical really, passing kind of, you know, fever, headaches, aches and pains, much like any kind of febrile kind of illness. So it's when you get to the next stage, which is the encephalitis bit, which is the brain swelling, The symptoms get much more severe, and that's, uh, you know, that's kind of disorientation, nausea, you know, terrible headaches, sometimes convulsions and unconsciousness and eventually death for some very unfortunate people. But the trouble is that even the people who survive having very severe symptoms and being hospitalised, the fact is that about 50% of the survivors go on to have to live with severe neurological complications for the, for the rest of their life. So it's, the point about this one is it's just, it's particularly shocking. There's no cure. The young are particularly vulnerable. And because this disease is vaccine preventable, it would kind of be tragic if moving forward, we didn't do all we could to really diminish the risk of contracting it.
0: Do we have enough vaccine?
1: We don't at the moment. We weren't really prepared for this. At the moment, uh, my understanding is, is that there's very little of the two available vaccines uh, which you could get through any kind of clinic. They've mostly been appropriated for this kind of national uh, vaccination effort, which will now focus on those people most at risk. If it decided, for example, that everybody living within five kilometres of a piggery was at risk, you know, they have nowhere near the amount of vaccine they, they would need.
0: Is it a good vaccine?
1: Yeah, the vaccines are excellent in humans, and, and, and that's why, as I say, it would be a tragedy if, if moving forward, this disease, it's clearly vaccine-preventable. One of the problems is that actually it's interesting that in many countries in Asia, which are endemic for Japanese encephalitis, they don't have great vaccine coverage, and that's because the vaccine can be extremely expensive. So someone's going to have to pay for it, and it's either government or it's the individual. But if you were to go to a travel clinic now, it would probably cost you three or $400 if you get one at all. So the costs are huge.
0: Why is it called Japanese encephalitis?
1: I don't actually know the answer to that because it was first isolated probably from, uh, from Japan where it's, where it's endemic.
0: I noticed that you use the hard C encephalitis yes. and a lot of people say encephalitis. What's the difference?
1: <laughs> so uh, I think it's just where you're educated. So I'm Scottish and uh, in Scotland they say encephalitis and they would do if you were at medical school in the UK. Lots of other people would just say encephalitis. It's kind of a It's actually encephalitis because it's originally Greek and so it's a hard K. How
0: does it compare as a disease with Murray Valley encephalitis? Is it very similar?
1: So they're extremely similar. So Murray Valley encephalitis is a much more, uh, well it's an endemic Australian disease. Um, It's always been here as far as we know. Um, It also has a wild bird reservoir and it also occurs in very wet warm years. So the big Murray Valley encephalitis outbreaks have been in 1956, 1974, 2011. So really big intervals uh, between outbreaks, but always these very wet, warm years. Murray Valley encephalitis is much rarer in the human population associated with being uh, a kind of a rural virus that circulates as I say amongst uh, migratory birds in relatively well in, in places where there, there is not a lot of connection between that environment and humans. So, you know, that's what makes Japanese encephalitis different, is they've got this kind of amplifying host, which is the pig, which suddenly brings the disease into very direct proximity with humans. Very interesting, again, rather underexplored. We seldom turn it up in surveillance exercises, again, so, you know, whether that tells us that we're, um, our surveillance is really not quite sophisticated enough. We don't really know where, where Murray Valley encephalitis is occasionally outbreaks from some sort of northern distribution and comes kind of further south. When there are outbreaks, they are, again, um, across every state.
0: When it comes to border control, how much help do you get there? I know your group is really well-versed in identifying every mosquito and can basically give you an address in India where it came from. Am I overstating that?
1: A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and we, we do do a lot of uh, mosquito identifications. It's actually not something that I'm particularly good at. Sort of morphological identification down a microscope will get you so far. But there's lots of mosquitoes which are really hard to distinguish just by their physical appearance. And it's interesting that in the case of Japanese encephalitis, although we think we know that the main vector is Culex and Neurostris, and it's relatively easy to distinguish from most other mosquito species, we have two other mosquitoes which have recently been introduced to Australia. One is Culex gelidus, which turned up in the 1990s in Queensland, and one is called Culex tritinorhynchus, the major Japanese encephalitis vector across Asia. And that turned up in the Northern Territory in 2021. I would very much doubt at this point whether they're heavily involved in transmission. Again, we need to kind of try and find out the distribution of those mosquitoes. And again, it's it's very hard to write a research grant where you're going to persuade someone to give you money just to go out and kind of trap lots of mosquitoes and identify them. That's stuff that kind of has to be done by government, really.
0: Now, you obviously see La Nina as contributing to the virus outbreak at the moment. How is climate change going to impact this in the next 10 to 20 years?
1: Climate is clearly something that everybody is increasingly concerned about. And there's hardly an institute out there that now doesn't have uh, some kind of centre that relates to climate. In the case of mosquito-borne disease, uh, the risks are increased for some diseases. So impacts of climate change on disease are always a little bit difficult because there's so many things that we can do to mitigate the risk of transmission. You know, And the example that I always use is that uh, malaria was pretty common in England. At the end of the First World War, because there, was so much, there were so many parasites coming in uh, with infected soldiers coming back. There was a mosquito that was very common in the marshes of southern England. It liked those kind of um, salty marsh areas, and it liked feeding on humans. Malaria was circulating quite happily there for a while. A number of different things happened, despite, you know, and ever since then, we know that the temperature has been increasing In England, there's definitely climate change, but we don't have malaria because a whole bunch of things happened. Uh, They drained the marshes, they brought in cows, which the mosquitoes happened to prefer more than humans, and they started to treat soldiers with quinine to get rid of the parasite. Against the background of climate change, we still don't have malaria, and we're never going to. So the relationship between mosquito-borne disease and climate isn't definitive. It's not always there. But in the case of Japanese encephalitis and things like Murray Valley encephalitis, I think we can quite safely say that La Nina is a little bit of a microcosm of climate in the future. So Queensland is definitely heating up, and it's going to heat up more. And although it may not become wetter overall, we think that extreme weather events will become more common. So we're going to have more warm, wet years, which I think just means that the interval between these viruses being able to circulate and occasionally spill over into human populations will probably decrease. But I think our biggest issue is climate. A mosquito-borne disease in Queensland is a mosquito called Aedes aegypti, which is the major vector of dengue and chikungunya and Zika. And at the moment, that mosquito uh, is within about 150 kilometres of Brisbane, but it's in these very small remnant populations in small towns which have very low importation rates of travellers carrying dengue or chikungunya or Zika back from uh, the places they visited overseas. So we don't see much dengue transmission.
0: That mosquito has not been that comfortable reproducing as far down as Brisbane, but if we're going to get warmer, that'll change, won't it?
1: That's right. Once you get to big urban centres like Brisbane, there's an awful lot of people coming through Brisbane International Airport who've been exposed to virus um, in other countries. They'll come in, they'll go home, and once they're at home, if Aedes aegypti is well established as a local mosquito, then they'll be responsible for beginning to transmit dengue to their neighbours. The public health response to the invasion of Aedes aegypti will have to be pretty significant. And there are things we can do about it. I mean, that my predecessor, Brian Kay, had a great deal to do with something that is now called the World Mosquito Programme which is responsible for putting a very benign bacteria into Aedes aegypti populations in the north of Australia, in north Queensland. And when that bacteria is in the population, those mosquitoes find it very difficult to transmit dengue. So the reason that you don't hear about dengue outbreaks in Cairns anymore is because that mosquito is now everywhere and protecting the population quite effectively against dengue transmission. So we could, if Aedes aegypti was to come into Brisbane, and we could use that technology to kind of make the, the mosquito population more benign and to make transmission less likely. But it still requires considerable effort and considerable money. Someone's going to have to grow it up, uh, release it, make sure it behaves the way it's supposed to do when it's in situ.
0: And I know your group has done a lot of work that is very interesting to our population who have all installed water tanks in the last 20 years in our backyards.
1: Yeah, so we had a PhD student, Brendan Truon, who now works for CSIRO, who did a lot of work on the potential for rainwater tanks to become kind of a network for the survival of Aedes Thai in Brisbane. So the interesting thing about rainwater tanks is that they're, they're everywhere and they're very large volume. So they create a kind of temperature buffer. So at the moment, if Aedes aegypti was trying to survive in Brisbane over the winter in a bucket, it might have a hard time because the temperatures in the bucket really kind of reduce to kind of levels where it can't survive in its larval stage. But what happens once uh, you've got rainwater tanks is that they buffer uh, that water against the external air temperature much better and create a much better environment for survival. So Brendan's work was really about showing that over time we would expect people's maintenance of rainwater tanks to kind of fall off and uh, they become much more permeable to mosquitoes and they could become quite an important uh, aquatic kind of network for those mosquitoes to survive here. But the other thing is, with climate change itself, even the temperatures in those um, smaller volumes will begin to increase and will encourage the survival of Aedes aegypti as well.
0: There are things we can do with those water tanks if you make sure that your mesh is up to grade.
1: Yeah, certainly screening uh, water tanks is really important. You know, In general, it's good practice not to have too much standing water around your house. Interestingly, there was a recent um, incursion of Aedes aegypti into Tennant's Creek, which is a small town in the Northern Territory. They've actually had a number of incursions over the years of Aedes aegypti. So normally Aedes aegypti is only Queensland, but a few times it's popped over the border. The reason we think it goes to Tennant Creek is because it's full of government employees who are moving all the time. So they pack up all the goods and they move somewhere else after a relatively short period of time. So a lot of movement. And when they pack up, they throw everything. The kids' toys that have been out in the rain, the dogs' drinking bowl, everything goes in and is transported um, somewhere else. So we think that's why Tennant Creek has Aedes aegypti from time to time. For For that example, where... Aedes aegypti established in Tennant Creek recently. That was thought to be by someone who had visited an Aedes endemic area near Townsville and had brought the drinking bowl back from Townsville. And that seemed to begin the latest kind of incursion of Aedes into Tennant Creek. So I, I think the point I'm making here is just that it does serve to be tidy around the house and be aware of the fact that mosquitoes do like to breed in standing water of any kind.
0: Apart from being away from a piggery or feral pigs, I know if you go to Cairns, the advice is spray your hotel room because you don't want a mosquito there who's already bitten another person. Uh, they're active during the daytime, so there's certain things that can help you avoid it. Is there anything like that for the Culex and Rosterus?
1: At the moment, they don't do much, if any, mosquito control in piggeries. Um, so obviously that will be one thing that they would bring in if they suspect that the piggery is is a source of virus so you can use, you know, space sprays to knock mosquitoes down and residual sprays to kill them if they rest on surfaces around the piggeries. You can treat the standing water around piggeries with a variety of very safe larvicides that will kill mosquito larvae. And you can put in, obviously, things like mesh and, and fans, which all help to reduce mosquito numbers a bit. Um, so that's that's at the pig end of things. In terms of humans, you, options are pretty limited. You just have to be aware that Culex and Neurosterus and most mosquitoes that transmit disease in Australia, including things like Ross River virus and Barmer Forest virus. They're all crepuscular, so they're dusk and dawn, and they're in kind of bushland habitat. I mean, you know when you're getting bitten by a large number of mosquitoes. Um, So if you're camping or travelling, cover up as best you can at at dawn and dusk, and wear long sleeves and long trousers, and cover your feet with closed shoes, and use lots and lots of repellent. Um, If you do that assiduously and carefully, uh, then actually that's a pretty good way of providing um, some protection. And the other is, uh, you know, screen your house. Um, But, but yeah, I do appreciate that lots of people cannot screen their houses very easily. But where you can, it's certainly worth doing.
0: Good luck in keeping JEV infections to a minimum. We're glad you're on the case. If you'd like to know anything more about Professor Greg Devine and his work here or any of our research, go to qimrberghoffer.edu.au. Thanks, Greg.
1: Thank you very much.